Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Anna Ryan. I'm Jess Mastricola. I'm Kevin Mazza. And I'm Mike DiFilippo. And we're going to talk about a, uh, a, a training topic today that, uh, you know, a lot of people tend to not want to touch on because it's scary or it's something that we don't see a lot. Uh, we're going to talk about pediatric airway management. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Very exciting stuff. <laughs> scary. So don't, don't turn off the so podcast. Why, it's going to be fine. So why are, yeah, don't turn off the podcast. You're going to pick up some good stuff. And and hopefully we're going to make it a little more comfortable for dealing with the uh, the little bobbleheads when they are not feeling bobble a little heads. under the wind, weather. Did you just make them into little I mean, figures? Yes. They That's are. That's the greatest. <laughs> they, are right. they are bobbleheads. They are little bobbleheads, aren't they? they just <laughs> Here's my other problem is that now I visualize someone just holding a baby up and shaking their head. This is not great. <laughs> no, please no. do not do that to your children. Do not. No. Different podcast. Do not. not what we're talking about. <laughs> it's a fast track to prison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So, so why is everybody scared about this? Because they're We babies. don't see them a lot. Yeah. I. Um, we don't see them a lot. I think because stakes are higher, stakes mm-hmm. are higher. The emotional it's, buy-in is so high. There's there right. kids. there's parents that are freaking out, and they're not as common. I just you don't see them a lot. It's as I think all. I think what we do with a lot of our patients is we're able to dehumanize them. It's mm-hmm. a really hard to dehumanize a kid and look at it as just a patient rather than that's like a, that's an eight year old baby or eight year old baby. Like wow, that's wow. that's a big that's baby. A <laughs> that's an eight year old child. That's quite the baby. An well, I mean, baby. there's some there's Listen. some there's some thirty year old babies. Trust me. Wow. But you right, you right. Okay, <laughs> the two girls, well. Point taken. <laughs> clearly, they're men. Yeah. This is my eight-year-old. He's still breastfeeding. <laughs> that <laughs> happens, man. That's a thing. It's okay. a thing. It's gross. Okay, I guess I that's mean, an airway I thing. I guess it's fine. I don't know. So, okay, so the emotional investment and, and the stakes just seem to be much, much higher. You know, everybody's really, really upset when these things happen. Because it should never happen to a kid. That's right. what it is. Good point. Absolutely. This should never be and, happening to someone so young. By nature, even the hardest, most burned out, crispiest medic mm. can't Everyone's get got angry that soft spot kid. for a baby. Everybody got a soft spot for a little If you don't have a soft spot for a baby, maybe it's time to get off the truck. Not me. You might catch Jess and I's face going like, eh, I don't yeah. know about uh, all that. Is it though? <laughs> it's, uh, listen, of all the jobs I've ever quote unquote taken home with me, none of them were kids. Yeah, same. All of my, well, most of all of mine are kids. Well, none of my, oh, the ones no, that the were kids were, yeah. Yeah, the jobs I took home, they were kids. I feel like you can't, I feel like you can't. I'm a lizard age. person, so it's okay. It was always people it's around okay. You do like to lay on something hot after I you eat. I do. I'm cold. It helps digest. <laughs> Jess is a cat. Like, it's... A lizard it's, cat. Okay. Li- lizard cat. She's cold, fair, cold-blooded I, cat. To be fair, I do invest more emotionally into animals than I do people. I do, but too. But babies are like, a soft spot. Like, okay. dead animals? No. So let's, all right. assu- yeah, all right. so let's assume there is an emotional investment. Let's assume. Okay. So what are what are some of the things that set us up for failure? What are some of the problems that we, we need to anticipate when we're dealing with these kids? I think the biggest thing to consider is just the differences in their <laughs> anatomy and physiology. Uh, they're not small adults, mm-hmm. despite what some people may say. So Kevin's laughing in the background because we were at a <laughs> course once, and the first instructor came in. These were both physicians and said, you just have to think of kids as small adults. And then no. the second instructor came in and said, kids are absolutely not small adults. <laughs> Wait, so, really? This happened? <laughs> yeah. It was in a different state. Oh, so speaking more to the point, I think some of the things that makes it scary is, one, we kind of know the anatomy and physiology of adults very well. One, because we are adults. And two, because that's the majority of our training. So there are some important things to consider. I mean, kids have a smaller airway diameter. They have a larger head and a larger tongue up until they're about two years old. 
in kids around eight years old, their larynx is more upwards towards the top of their head, and the epiglottis is softer and floppier. And then the cricoid ring gets more narrow at the vocal cords, whereas in the adults, it's just nice and open. And then when you're talking about physiology, one important measurement of lung reserve is called the functional reserve capacity. And not to get too sciencey, but that's just the amount of air present in your lungs after you take an exhalation. And that air that's, that's not, left is over... Is that like similar to end tidal? Kind like of. A similar idea. Well, end tidal is just the amount of uh, CO2 that's out on the exhale. But like the end volume. Uh, right, yeah. Think tidal, end tidal volume. End tidal is what's measured when you get to that mm-hmm. point. Right. Anything after that's your functional reserve Got capacity. It. Right, so your functional residual okay. capacity is just what's ever left in the chamber after you've taken a breath out. Okay. And it's that whatever is left in the chamber is what present, prevents desaturation. So in kids, they have less functional reserve capacity, so that means they desaturate a lot quicker. So for a healthy adult, they'll maintain a pulse ox of 90% for six minutes when they're apneic. A pediatric patient will maintain that pulse ox of 90% for three minutes, so half the time. And then a sick baby, a sick infant, will desat within a minute. So that's just like one thing to consider as far as like their physiology. And then the other thing is when you're administering drugs, their metabolic rate and the extracellular fluid is much higher. So that means they burn through drugs quicker and they dilute, dilute the drugs that are injected intravenously more. So you may actually need a larger dose, which is kind of contrary to what you would think for a smaller patient. So I see some opportunities here. And I'm looking at this from an opportunity of like, hey, I want to get confident. You know, Mm. one of the things that gets me is, um, you know, the um, when you were talking about um, (laughs) brain fart. (laughs) Oh, boy. It's cool. Um, You know, burn rate of your drugs. There's benefit there. You don't have the effect as long. So the kid won't be affected by the medication as long as as an adult would. So that might have some uh, might have some, uh, you know, event, you know, advantage to that. Well, yeah, that's one of the reasons they suggest using succinylcholine versus rocuronium in kids, really? even though rock may be better. Rock stays in your system for a lot longer. Okay. Pediatric patients, you can be a skilled provider and you're still inefficient in intubating pediatrics. So that's why they suggest using those medications that aren't in the system as yeah. long. Another thing too is where you know where you're talking about you know the the epiglottis being higher in uh, in little kids as opposed to adults. You know, have you ever seen a kid screaming to the point where if you looked in their mouth with a flashlight, you can see their epiglottis? Like out of a cartoon. Yeah. And they're screaming yeah. and you can see everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. I mean, there's there's some good pictures out there on the internet about it. Um, but, you know, that it's almost like a Malampati zero or negative one. Negative one. one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's a huge mistake when people intubate. You know, one of the things that I had to learn was you got to go really slow and incrementally because, you know, we're, we're stressed out. We're pumped up. We want to get this tube in and we want to get first pass success with this kid. And invariably, you see people jam the, bl- you know, slide the blade in and they go deep and they're running right over that and they're going right to the goose. So I think. Now that you brought up intubation, I think another thing that makes people a little wary about intubating pediatrics is I think it's safe to say we live in a Mac-dominated world when it comes to intubating, Mm -hmm. and you are drilled that you have to use a Miller blade when you're intubating pediatrics. And the reason for that is the Miller blade just goes right underneath and lifts the epiglottis, whereas the Mac goes into the vollecula and you still have the epiglottis there. So if it's more floppy in a kid, you want the Miller to (laughs) just get that out of your Mm -hmm. view so all you're viewing is the trachea. But a lot of people aren't comfortable with the Miller and I feel like that just adds another level See, of discomfort. I, and and I, I take it from the other, uh, the you know, I look at it like I use the Miller on the little babies. I lo- I use them on the neonates and the under a year old or two years old. I like the Mac. I like the Mac too. 
I'll use that for, you know, the older kids and I can use it as a miller. You know, I, I can I can go, you know, I can kind of slide it either way on that. Um, but, yeah, I think there are people that, you know, that miller blade, you know, they get very, very like. Yeah. So I don't have the study here, unfortunately, but I did read um, there is actually no difference in outcome <sighs> what blade you use. It just comes down to provider preference and skill. And that makes sense. Right. It doesn't matter what you use. Be good at it. I actually know someone that prefers to intubate everyone from an infant up until a 1,000-year-old with a Mac 3. What? 1,000? I know it sounds crazy, but they will just jam a Mac 3 in there and use oh, that. I'm not, I'm not jam a Mac 3 in there. That just makes me <laughs> just nauseous. Jam I don't <laughs> just like jam it. it I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but as far as the width of the blade, yeah. I don't think it's that different if you look at like a Mac 2 or anything. I'll no. get there. Much. I'll much. get there. All right. There, mm. I mean, there is obviously a size different for the neonatal blades, but yeah. I think when you're talking infant, toddler. I think when you're talking school age, I think above six years old, you're probably. You're probably fine. You're probably all right. Yeah. I mean, I always kind of used the Mac as a Miller anyway. I always inserted deep. Yeah. Slid back until it popped into the molecula. Oh, really? Yeah. That's yeah, interesting. That's I never they, liked um, to. I always went we deep and pulled as. back mm-hmm. with the Mac. With the Mac. That's the end of my rhyming. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, what do you guys think about that? Any preference on blades or? I, I, I like I said, I'm a Mac guy. I've always been a Mac guy. Um, I will use the Mac as primarily as putting it into the molecular. But again, with a with a younger patient or or, or an older kid, I, I find that I can hook it, you know, hook the epiglottis and get a good view anyway. And I practice for that. Um, with like I said, with the really tiny. You know, little bobbleheads. I will absolutely, I will absolutely go with a Miller, and I'm looking straight. The big thing that I'm doing is, you will never see me move slower than in a pediatric intubation. And when I do it in the sim or when I do it on the mannequins, I literally take that tongue and I go incrementally, almost millimeter by millimeter, until I can see an epiglottis, mm. and then I'm lifting up. The benefit, the big thing I always like with you know, it, you know, especially in the sim or. You know, in, in the real situations, rare as they may be, is, you know, I don't have to worry about breaking the tooth. I don't have to worry about, mm-hmm. you know, I've got the biggest mouth opening I possibly can because I don't have any dentition. You know, so that's a that's mm-hmm. a really good thing. Well, um, and the tissues are all young. It's all pliable. There's nothing stiff in there. You know, it's it's good. The what vocal cords are actually white like they tell you they're yeah, supposed to yeah, be. Yeah, I think that's a lie. That's a lie. <laughs> um, what about positioning? As far as when you're preparing to intubate, so they have larger heads, right? Right. Follow so, what? How does the positioning change? As opposed to an adult, I mean, you just want that straight line from the tragus of the ear down to the nipple line mm-hmm. of the sternum. So, with kids, because they have the bigger head, it's obviously a little harder to do with just a head adjustment like you would with an adult. Would padding like their shoulders behind the shoulders? Yeah, yeah and you kind of have to okay. let their head hang a oh. little bit. I okay. even know some providers that would just let the head hang they're, off the end of the stretcher. They're big old noggins. Yeah. Yeah, if, yeah. Like if you don't have a towel or <laughs> little noggins. Someone yes. literally says, I don't know how to make a towel roll. What? And you're uh, like, seriously? Oh, that's Usa. for a beer cast oh, later. Yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just let their head hang. I mean, ultimately, it's just coming down to knowing the anatomy and how you can achieve the ideal anatomy you want. So okay. you don't need a towel. You can just hang their head off the edge of the stretcher. And mm-hmm. as long as you get the tragus in line with the nipple line or the sternum, you're good. And we have to kind of t- come away with the idea that that's going to hurt somebody, too. Well, like, also remember right, with yep. kids, because their trachea isn't fully calcified and it's a little more floppy, too. It's going to You can hyperextend. Them. Yeah. Right. So you can also close off by hyperextending the neck right. too far. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to also play around when you're in there with the laryngoscope. Tool. So this is really the only true sniffing position. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is this is the one. It's not, you know, people bend the heads back and they right. don't understand. You're you're actually pinching the airway off there. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you go too far back. It's very interesting. Okay. And then I I know we were discussing this pre-recording, but the Braslow tape or what I call the rainbow tape. I didn't know it was called Braslow tape. The what was the length based resuscitation tape. Yes, okay. with the length based resuscitation tape. So the left LBRT. I'm not very versed in the tape because in the hospital we just straight up weigh the kids. Right. Because we, we have that at our disposal. Sure. But pre-hospital, you're not going to walk around with an We don't have scale. scales. No. no. So the the, ra- the Braslow tape, rainbow tape. Uh, Length-based resuscitation, resuscitation tape. Not trademarked. So that <laughs> is essentially what probably one of the most important tools you're going to use as far as drug calculation. Oh, yeah. Just with any kids. preparation for intubation or anything, you, you need to have the right tools at your disposal and practice using those tools. So the one that everyone knows how to use coming out of paramedic school is the Prozel tape. And you should have Brazil tape on your ambulance. Probably hasn't been pulled out. It's all nice and crusted over in the pediatric bag. Mm-hmm. But just check. Look, make it's sure the it's first there. thing I still check when I'm checking the truck. I, I could care about anything else in the pediatric bag. I, I can make it work. The right. one thing I want to make sure I have is I have that tape. Because the beauty of it is, because my have phone to think. will die, my batteries will die. Mm-hmm. I can't use any app. And you know what? I'm going to need to give meds to this kid, and the kid's going to be sick. And I'm like. You know, oh, is it this? Is it point one or is it point oh oh one? Or if it's this, forget it. Just measure the kid. Learn how to do it quickly. Call it out to everybody. Hey, kid's a blue. He's a green. He's this, and then just read it off. It makes life so much easier. Right. I think it just comes down to the consistency of knowing what tools you're going to use. So if you have an app, you know you're going to use the app. Make sure you know how to use that app cold, because mm-hmm. the worst time to be figuring out, oh, what does this button do, and how do I actually enter this information is when you have a kid in cardiac arrest in front of you and you're trying to determine the correct drug dosages. The Brazil tape is length-based. Some medications go by ideal body weight. There's an obesity epidemic, which surprise, 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 if you're an EMS, you're not unfamiliar with. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, there are kids that are a lot heavier than the suggested weight. So there's also some debate about should it be the child's actual weight or the ideal body weight. Brazil goes by ideal body weight based off length. So you can also use an app as long as you're just comfortable using the app. So it just comes down to consistency and preparation. I, I still like the tape. I, 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 it doesn't. The batteries don't die. I can't, I don't have to worry about getting service. I don't have to worry about connecting to the internet. It's it's yeah. there. So, uh, an important thing on the Brazil tape and any app, I should say, when it comes to intubation, make sure you always have a tube a half millimeter size down, down and, and up. up. Yeah. Because it's I always an estimation, and the kid's trachea may be a different size. So when you get in there and you take a look. And you say, oh, I actually don't think this is going to be a 5 It's going to be a 5-5 or a 6 You have it ready to go. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to uncuffed or cuffed, hey-o. the data's actually starting to go towards cuffed tubes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my place went to it. That yeah. wasn't already yeah. a thing? No. 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 Really? To, below a certain age, I think, used to be uncuffed only. Really? And you would never get cuffed. But they're finding cuffed tubes actually the preferred way to go. Right. The idea originally behind the uncuffed tube was because the trachea narrowed, it would provide sufficient enough... Um, blockage to prevent okay. from any kind of aspiration and the thought with with un, with cuff tubes the thought was since the, since the it's not completely calcified yet and not hardened it might actually cause damage, damage. but okay. that doesn't appear to be the case so we just started um going to cuff tubes at our place and the way we're using them is go ahead and intubate don't inflate the cuff and see how your air leak is if you've got a lot of air leak or you're not really getting good ventilations, then go ahead and inflate the cuff. I think it's and 
it, it cuts it cuts you know it's six you know it, it kind of plays both sides of the fence you know you mm-hmm. can leave it in there you're getting good ventilation but if you just need that sometimes you have those kids who need a little bit more airway pressure or they need a little bit more ventilatory effort you got it you're there so i i, I like cuff tubes i think it's a good way to go i think it standardizes things um they are a little more expensive, but they weren't drastically expensive. I don't think I didn't see my boss screaming about it, um, so it was okay. So the next thing I think I want to bring up, if this is okay with everybody, is: Do you guys think paramedics should be intubating pediatrics? Well, mm, yes. So yes. the reason the reason I bring that up is I'm going to use Ooh. emergency medicine resident physicians as an example. So an ER residency after you finish medical school is anywhere from three to four years where you're training. It's kind of on-the-job training for those who are unfamiliar. And those doctors that do an ER residency, on average, intubate less than 10 pediatric patients. Really? Across the United States. Oh, that's probably a good and thing. And that's, that's with dedicated well, pediatric the, ER the, residency yeah. rotation points. Like you're doing a whole month or three months in a pediatric ER. And still, even with all of that, they're intubating less than 10 peds patients. Wow. And then an anesthesia study, which I talked about on a previous podcast, said... To become proficient with intubating pediatrics, to have a 90% first-pass success rate, you need to do at least 50 intubations. Anything less than that, your first-pass success is less than 50%. That's a lot. That's that a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. You know, like... Most, and especially us as pre-hospital providers, we'll go... A lot of... We'll go with less than 10 pediatric intubations in our entire career. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you That's know... That's true. Intubation... Yeah, no, if... Bring uh, even uh, even more so. You go with less than fifty attempts, and you're, you'll go less than ten pediatric Look, attempts your whole career. I'm coming up on, I think what, eighteen, nineteen years of the. Oh the boy, game. that's almost eighty years, Lois. <sighs> <laughs> that's eighty years in EMS years. Less, I can count less than ten in my career. Right, and there was a study that came out of the journal Resuscitation in two thousand eight. It was an observational study, which means they formed a question and they just watched what the results were with the question in mind. It was performed in the Netherlands, which has an ALS system very similar to us here in the United States as far as what their ALS can do. And it actually found that the paramedics' failure rates were, and I'm quoting, unacceptably high. Ouch. Ooh. Yeah. Talk wow. about a sting to it the stings. ego. stings. Wow. Stings. But what did they find worked when they flew a doctor out to the scene to intubate? So the really? question is... Is it a training issue? Does the doctor intubate more in the Netherlands? That I don't know. So here's my thing. Does it? Does the physical skill, is there some magic thing? And I know you're a third year, but, you know, come down to the little people for a little bit. <laughs> is there some magic ring that they give you in medical school that makes you better at intubating than me? Yes. It's in the same <laughs> class where we learn how to uh, infect people with cancer, uh, steal money from Medicaid and farm companies, Mm. Uh, so it's a seminar. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All joking aside. Oh, it's a capstone. <laughs> capstone project. All, all joking mm-hmm. aside, there, there's no change as far as treatment uh, and interventions are, are concerned as far as what I learned in paramedic school versus medical school, which may or may not scare some people. I think it's a great thing. It shows that in some aspects, paramedics are taught to the same level as a physician. I think it just comes down to experience and having the ability to do things. So when I'm in the OR and I know a PEDS cases coming in it's very easy for me to walk up to the anesthesiologist and say hey i'm a medical student i'm interested in going into em can i just tube this kid well you're prepared for them to come in and nine times out of ten they'll say yeah sure you're a med student go for it as Mm -hmm. opposed to when i was a paramedic student i remember them being like uh yeah so you know maybe it's things like that where it's just the increased opportunity for me to do hands-on stuff that i would otherwise not have the opportunity to do what are the 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I've, I was done. Okay. <laughs> but like, what if it's the, the, the actual um, condition of the, of the child? So a lot of our training is based on, you know, just oxygen therapy usually reverses any kind of you know, detrimental thing that's happening to the kid anyway. So right. if I'm giving them high flow nasal or I'm doing a non rebreather or something like that, and then the need to intubate goes away, then why would I bother? Right. So the question mm. then is what causes kids to go into respiratory failure or cardiac arrest? Right. Right. And, and what, mm-hmm. what's that population? So mm-hmm. it's kids with congenital conditions, which and deadly sequelae from them. So things like Down syndrome. Sequelae. Good for you. It's a $10 Sequel- word. Is that wow. how you say that? I think so. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Everybody else I've, rolled with it. I've always seen it written out, uh, but I've never said it. We all just kind of went, uh, you know, he's in medical said, school. It's got to be right, right? He, so, did, he did his uh, stuff. Down, Down syndrome, for instance, right? We all mm-hmm. can think of the Down syndrome person. We may have yeah. a family friend or a worker at a certain store may visit that has Down syndrome. And Down syndrome, just like a lot of medical conditions, is a huge spectrum. You have individuals with Down syndrome that have, you know, very well-functioning lives. And then you have individuals with Down syndrome that don't live past the age of like six or seven. Mm -hmm. And those individuals have like huge congenital malformations with their airway, their tongue, um, and just cardiac issues that cause them to go into cardiac arrest younger. So they're already off the bat much more difficult to intubate. So it's things like, I just use that as, as a specific example, but when you're looking at kids in pediatric intubation studies, that's a huge thing to consider. Like they're just difficult airways de facto from congenital issues. Right. And then you think of pediatric prevalent infections in the airway. There's epiglottitis, bacterial tracheitis, retropharyngeal abscesses, which are these giant nasty abscesses you get in the back of the throat that literally just swell up the airway. Ew. Hmm. And you can't get Gross. a tube down there even with a glide scope. Right. Is that something you would decompress with a needle? Surgically. Like they usually really? go to the OR and oh have it incised gosh. then. It's a big thing. Wow. So those are things that we may be seeing in the field that and we're you know, not prepared for. Right. I had no idea what the hell that was when I was yeah, in medical. I mean, yeah. could you imagine looking? I've and never like even heard of that. Tube down there were a bunch of things when Kevin and I were partners where we were like, <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> Diesel <Good luck>. bolus. <laughs> 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 like, but sometimes that's the answer, and, and yeah. they're just generally harder to intubate, mm-hmm. and not counting on top of that the low frequency of intubation. Right. So specifically to the one study that called their uh, intubation rate h- unacceptably high. These uh, kids that were intubated in the Netherlands by these paramedics and then the physician were already very, very sick. Were already very, very sick patients. Right. Um, they all these patients they had a helicopter called on standby for them because hmm. they were so uh, sick. Okay. Wow. So it was already a sicker population. Right. That it's looking at. So maybe it wasn't a great study. I just primarily used it as a talking point. Well, it's, I, I think the, it's the a good point prepares. that they we probably don't practice it enough. We probably don't prepare ourselves mel- mentally. We probably don't get the mannequin out more than you know more than we should. Um, we probably there's a lot of programs that probably don't give their paramedics an option. You know, our place. I know we have pediatric eye gels. You know, we use them. We're not afraid, of, you know, and we say to them, look, if you're looking, you don't see anything, put the eye gel in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very few places out there that are that are giving, you know, alternative for, you know, ped superglottic airway stuff. And, you know, this is something that you don't teach in your basic le- entry-level program. This is stuff, you know, you've got to go to a difficult airway class. You've got to go to seek out this knowledge. And I think that's where the, you know, the physicians have more opportunities, but there is stuff out there for medics. And I also think as a paramedic, you should be very knowledgeable of the area you're responding in. Some of us work in areas that it's 90 plus percent, 90 plus year olds. Yeah. And we never have to worry about seeing a pediatric patient. God's waiting room. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's some of us Pre-mortuaries. that work in- <laughs> Florida. 
Um, <laughs> and then there's some of us that work in areas that are Florida. like Florida, overabundance, Silverton. Of kids. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and then some of us work in areas where there's an overabundance of kids, or we may be working in the medic unit that does all the football standbys, and there's right. a whole bunch of toddlers playing football and stuff like that. You know, just knowing your 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 catchment, the the patients you will be seeing that are going to be coming into your ambulance. I think is vital so you're mentally prepared as to what is the population I'm going to be treating. If you have an unusually high pediatric population, you should be very well versed mm-hmm. in your pediatric anatomy, physiology, the differences that it's going to be going into an intubation of an adult versus a peds. And it's easy to think of things when you're intubating an adult, for instance. One of the suggestions in one of the papers was every time you're intubating an adult, this was written for ER doctors, but totally translatable to paramedics. Think of how would this be if I was a kid, if this was a kid? Like, yeah, I'm looking at That's a trachea of an 84-year-old yeah. right now, but what would be different if it was a kid? Right. Okay, it would be narrower. narrower. The epiglottis would be higher. Um, I would have to do a towel roll underneath to make sure the tragus was in line with the, the sternum. So almost like mentally conditioning yourself mm-hmm. for that pediatric when it comes in. Right. So yeah. if and when it comes in, you don't have to do any thinking. It's already cold. You know it. You can just go right to it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also the ability to step away from that procedure while you're in process of it. So that's a that's a whole separate aspect of training in the f- anyway. Well, speaking of, um, California just announced, or not just announced, but about a year ago, that they were moving pediatric intubation for some of their paramedic scope of practice. And uh, <coughs> their EMS physician cited that the potential cr- contributing factor for removing it was paramedic PTSD <sighs> and the health, provi- health no. of the provider. Stop mm. it. As, I have in, as in the intubating. I have a rant, but go for it. Oh. Finish so, up because so her argument was besides pummel this the <laughs> decreased besides the decreased ability of paramedics to effectively intubate pediatrics that the intubation of the pediatric would cause an elevated level of paramedic PTSD and would be too taxing on the mental health of the EMS provider. And so close. So Good God. Uh, so so no. where do we begin with that? Let's, let's, I have no let's, word. Let's start. Man. Let's start with Anna's JVD. Okay. Because I cannot understand how this cop-out is, first of all, acceptable, and secondly, removes any responsibility from the program to support their paramedics if there was a PTSD component anyway. Oh my I am God, yelling. You're red. I'm so mad. Your chest is getting red. <laughs> so oh my She's, God, Anna. She is Here's my furious. thing. Okay? You don't oh. get to take a skill away from providers because you feel that mentally they can't handle it and then say that you're not going to support them afterwards. If, th- if what I'm yeah. doing is going to oh. cause PTSD then I don't get to not perform that skill, especially if it's needed in the field. That's my job. Yeah. But the scary thing is not going away. So how do you support me otherwise? You need to I'll get- I'll murder you. We- <laughs> and I be- and I- and here's the thing. I bet you these agencies, they don't have superglottic airways. Oh, they don't. not. They don't have the training. They, they, have, you know, they have a place where there's five paramedics on a big red truck that goes, you know, you know. And how many intubation attempts? And, you know, we, we, we did an intubation episode and talk about all the, the, the limitations and all the problems that we see mm-hmm. nationwide with this skill. Multiply it by 10 for peds because we don't see them enough. And I, I think you're right. I think it is a cop out. Oh, well, we're not going to give you this skill because it's, it's, it hurts too much yeah, for you to you do it. You might be sad you afterwards. You might be sad afterwards. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be a little sad if I have to intubate a four-year-old. And you're allowed to be. But my job as a professional is first and foremost to make sure that that kid survives whatever I plan to do for him. Exactly. If that is the basis for why they would remove that, wouldn't 
it just be as big of a problem if they didn't intubate and the child passed away because you w- didn't secure their airway? Yeah. Like, I don't understand. Ooh, interesting philosophical conundrum, Jess. Forced overtime Ooh, is a cause of paranoid PTSD. Oh. I mean, there's a lot. Hmm. <laughs> oh, we can't do, we can't hold you over six hours because, you know, being away from your family contributes to PTSD. Right. You'll never hear that. All the time. I mean, let's let's use let, let's extrapolate this out. Like we could literally do nothing because anything we do in this job mm-hmm. could conceivably cause us traumatic stress. A hundred, a hundred percent of the time. And I mean, not to plug my own blog post, but I mentioned that every single job you go on, regardless of the severity, does wear at you over time. Yeah, yeah. and each we, and everything we, will we deal catch up in, to you. We deal in trauma. That's so, what we do. The, I think a solution to me would be to get people comfortable with being uncomfortable. And in order to better get better with pediatrics, you have to be you have constant exposure to danger breeds contempt for it. Mm-hmm. So you need to see this, whether it's a high fidelity sim, whether you spend some time in a PICU, in an OR that's specialized in pediatrics, let's say like, you know, a, a regionalized centri- um, children's hospital in the area. You need to get good at this. I don't give a crap if like your panties get in a bunch or what other you know misogynistic. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> was a really good one. Say. We're sitting with two women. You yeah, know, well, nice, nice job. I, that's all right. We've I've already been, planned your knickers. Death, I've been partners. Would knickers be a better term. <laughs> I've been partners with both of them in some way, shape, or form. So um, yeah, no, hey, don't oh, get your listen. listen. But if you're uh, if you're uncomfortable doing it, that needs to come up earlier than well. Our medical director thinks it gives us all PT. What if you get squeamish at the sight of blood? Like, what are you doing in this Some field? Medics do. Also, is that the only thing in not helpful in? Is that the only thing in yeah. a pediatric call that gives you PTSD? What about a dead baby? Yeah. No, what, about the par- right, what about what the about dead the parents? kid you're intubating? Yeah. yeah. Or the parents screaming in your ear? There's the parents. There's the scene. What the if you have to do an I.O.? What if you parts. have to give drugs that you know are going to scar them later? Like, this is preposterous. Right. I think it's a cop-out because it there's a lot a of other <laughs> low-frequency, high-stress, necessary procedures we have yeah. to do. And, and pediatrics are low f- And pediatrics are low-frequency. I don't even know if I'd give them the, the decency of calling it a cop-out. This is you being terrified of your paramedics' either ineptitude or the lack of their training. And well, you, oh, have, the po- you have the ability no, to fix that. So, what, but ima- so imagine, if you will... <laughs> What is the what is the pediatric patient that is most likely gonna have to be intubated no matter what happens? Pediatric airway burn. Yeah, that patient say. has to be yes. intubated. And you're taking well, that any airway burn. Remember, any. yeah, any airway, airway burn. Yeah, but fire, I'm talking fire, specifically fire. for pediatrics because they're, they're taking it away. Right, but. You're I mean, not going to be able to drive fast enough no. to get them to an I ED. Cannot, I cannot you fly can't fast even enough. Intubate fast enough. You can, right. No, exactly. Some, like, so right. to take the, the a superglottic, air, so a superglottic airway isn't going to cut it. A no. pediatric eye gel, king, whatever is not going to cut it in this situation. Mm-hmm. And people always like we like to joke about EMS. Like, oh, you earn money sleeping. The truth <laughs> is, we're we're not paid for what we do. We're paid for what we might have to do. Yeah. And this is something we might have to do, and it's something we have to do well. So get over it and do it. Wow, as he just slammed the mic away kevin drop now (laughs) this is an interesting point of you know well you know and and there may be people out there who are saying well you know we'll just throw them in the back of the truck and we'll go to the bus and we'll you know we'll fly to the hospital we're just around the corner and now the airways felt shut so good job so jess talk about (laughs) getting into the ed and actually getting immediate treatment done in an emergency department with a critical patient right now First of all, if you bring me... She's so much calmer than I am. Yeah, first of all, (laughs) if you bring me a pediatric patient that should have been intubated, and you come in and they're not intubated, and you tell me, well, we didn't even try because we were too nervous, I think my head might fall off because I'm going to be so angry that it's just going to explode off my face. Like, it's just my whole face going to explode because pediatric emergencies, 
first of all, what's the number one cause of cardiac arrest in pediatric patients? Respiratory emergencies. Respiratory Thank arrest. you. So anytime you have a patient who's pediatric, so what would we say? I would say about 13 and under, sorry, 13 and under-ish. If they have any kind of respiratory problem and you don't fix that right away, you are now increasing their chance of going into cardiac arrest. Okay? And we don't get kids back from cardiac arrest. And kids do not come back from cardiac arrest. And if they do, like, I don't know how good of a life they're going to have, if at all. Right. Remember the the number Mike said earlier. You only have about three minutes of apnea before you start seeing desaturation. And that's in a healthy kid. Never mind a kid with a congenital problem or who's had a longstanding, like, respiratory issues from, like, who knows. But go on. So let's say this. They don't come in EMS. They come in through the waiting room, and we have a kid in severe respiratory distress. The first thing we're doing is we're getting that respiratory distress under control. One of the first things we do... No, the first thing they're doing is registering him and getting a wristband. Oh, well, actually, insurance. not really. And finding the doctor. No. <laughs> so I, this actually happened to me the other day. A 12-year-old came in in severe respiratory distress. His lip... Cyanotic, like he had cyanosis of the lips. And he had the biggest retractions I've ever seen in my entire career. Like, retracting. And I could see inside his soul, all right? It was bad. <laughs> and, oh, wow. <laughs> and thankfully, the triage nurse went out, saw him. He wasn't even registered yet. We pulled him straight back and started working on him before he was even registered. So he wasn't even technically a patient. But we got, I got him back. We put him on, I put him on high flow nasal cannula at the time. That's a good deal because there's, there's yeah. places that won't do that. Oh, but that no. should speak to the severity of it. That is should. that like I have well, cardiac arrest patients. I have Rosk that comes in and they're like, I know you're doing compression, you're not but registered. like, what's his last name? Yeah. What's his social? So and like, even, even so what's he here for? Yeah. Even I, more to I know the there's point. this thing happening, but. Even more <sighs> to the point why paramedics should be intubating peds. Yeah. And correct. why we should be keeping RSI and all this other yeah. intubation. Because if you show up to the ER and they're not intubated, you aren't guaranteed because to get a f- we, any faster of a response we, from us. Not only faster, we do it quicker. You do yeah. do it quicker. And I. <laughs> I do do. A. Um, <laughs> And Kevin and I, when we work together, have intubated, done a full RSI less than five minutes from the hospital sometimes. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's quicker for us to control this airway now than it is to drive them fast to the hospital, get them out of the ambulance, into the ER, to then translate to the ED team, Mm -hmm. hey, this patient's sick and needs a tube, and I know our doctor called you five minutes ago, and oh yeah, I know you're busy, and we need a room, and all this other type of stuff. But a viable patient is what you're looking for. You have two paramedics, or some places one paramedic, that can do this job quick and effective in the back of this ambulance Mm -hmm. right now. And get this area under control right now, mm-hmm. as opposed to giving it a good diesel bolus and a good hurrah right. when you get to the ER. And I feel like the diesel Huzzah. bolus is fine for like the eighty-year-old who you're like, well, we can do it on like a non-breather, or we can bag her in, or whatever it is. I but don't like, think the diesel bolus is the appropriate answer to anything. No, anymore. but I'm saying is that no. like if you're oh if you're presented God, with a child yes. and you have the opportunity to control that airway and give <sighs> them the oxygen that they need anyway and negate that that sprint towards the light, then you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is stupid. So I don't ever want to see a patient come in my back doors via so ambulance. Not there's, there's few enough places that do RSI, but what about places that have an age cutoff for RSI? Mm. That's that's. Uh, first of all, how do you quantify what age exactly is appropriate to start RSI? That is that that's bizarre to me. I think most places I've worked at was always puberty. Thirteen, right? Okay, Science-ish. but puberty is the most broad spectrum because I hit TMI maybe. I hit puberty when I was nine years old. I wasn't 25. 
until I went through. <laughs> <laughs> so I hit puberty at nine. I was, but so I was hitting liquor stores at 17. <laughs> I had a full beard yeah. then. I hit puberty I mean, at I'm nine. I'm not convinced you another, weren't born with a beard. Another girl my age I'm so uncomfortable may not hit right puberty now. until she's 16. Right. So and that is not an adequate marker for when we should do RSI. That's a good point. Not so at all. I, I don't think there should be any difference between age and when you should or should not RSI. No. I think paramedics should have the ability to RSI anybody of any age. And the reason I say that is I'm truly of the belief that a paramedic unit should serve as a mobile critical care unit and a true mobile ER. The whole purpose of having a well-trained, well-educated paramedic is to supplement and supplant the ER in the field. And that means you're going to be seeing babies, you're going to be seeing kids, you're going to be seeing adults, you're going to be seeing elderly geriatric patients that all require RSI and airway control. And the answer always comes down to good training and good practice. Always doesn't matter the age and good matter. oversight, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think and if, if you people have that, aren't doing it the right way, then you either correct them or you take it away from them. Correct. But you don't take the baby. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. No. Right. Unless you know? the bathwater is on fire or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's, there's a layer of gasoline on fire right. and it's on fire. <laughs> Unless the environmental regulations <laughs> are completely repealed and your <laughs> faucet lights on fire. So I just think the answer ultimately, and I, I know we keep saying it a lot, is just it comes down to repetition is the key to success. You repeatedly practice. You repeatedly go over what you need to do, whether that's in high-fidelity simulation, whether that's getting anesthesia time in the OR with a pediatric anesthesiologist or doing PTD time. It just comes down to getting hands-on experience and just making sure you can go through the motions. Well, here's the thing. Like I, I know there are going to be people that argue that, well, maybe we don't have access to having hands-on like practice at a hospital. That's... BS, because if you're in a ambulance, your job is to bring these people to a hospital. Therefore, there is a hospital that you can go to to go get these skills done, right? So here in There's the agreements that everybody can get into. It's mm -hmm. just you have to be willing to be persistent and to fight the battle. Yeah. Right. So for us for us here where we are, it's much, much easier for to get your pre-hospital providers into the hospital because oh, we're, sure. all, we're a hospital-based system for ALS, correct? So maybe someplace that's a fire department base, they would need to enter a group with the hospital to get them into these PICUs. But I think the real answer might be high-fidelity simulation, mm -hmm. where you can have these sims where the tongue will swell up. It has a floppy epiglottis. The airway actually oh, sure. physically closes. These things exist. Yes, they cost a pretty penny, but as Anna yeah, but said pre-show, how much it. does a lawsuit cost? Uh -huh. Yeah. Who, who cares? I don't care what it costs. How much do you, how much does and a life cost? And are you giving them the right equipment? Or are right. you giving them a full complement of... And endotracheal tubes invest it, in your if you're giving employees. them superglottic airways are you giving them the ability to do a needle crike do you practice yeah. that you know so when you have that rare can intubate can oxygenate scenario in a child that you can do it with some proficiency yes it's risky yes it requires training but we have to decide as a profession are we worth it or do we just want to be uber with a light bar punting is popular and never punt and what I mean by that is punting to other specialties or punting to another provider is popular and never do that. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. are trained for those skills. We should practice with those skills and we should become proficient with those skills. Right. The you minute you as a paramedic or EMS physician or whatever says somebody else can do this when they get to the hospital is absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. you right. are and, and look at the center. other low frequency procedures we do. Like, okay, I can tell you in my life I've done less than 10 needle decompressions. Should that mean that I should never do them? Absolutely no. not. The, the whole, the whole. I've never done a cricothyrotomy in my life. Thank Does that we, mean I shouldn't do it? I'm we literally train for the instances of. I'm ready. One second makes the difference. Very, very rarely. Mm -hmm. Very rarely. But that's what we train for, and we put all the hours in. 
And it could mean, yeah, your whole 30-year 30, 30 career was for this one moment mm-hmm. where you got the tube on this kid. And this is the whole reason this person is going to grow up and become a functioning member of society. Thank God. Is because you put that airway in or you were there to defibrillate them or you were there to do that crike or that chest decompression. So just because it's low frequency doesn't mean the time and the education should not be invested. I also think especially that just for paramedics. Just because you came away from a training center doesn't mean you can't go back. All right. of us were trained in a school. If it's not open for you to go back to, then Listen, wh- what's I the point? I think our research process should be a little bit more hands-on than show up, listen to some people talk, and then you go on your fancy way with Forget your papers. Forget the research process. Like I, I know that I'm uncomfortable with my video scope or whatever it is. Is that so? I I have these. I work three days a week. I have four days off. I'm going to take six hours out of my day and make sure I get myself over to if, the training. If center. your what? training center doesn't have an open door policy that anybody can come in whenever they want, when it's open, and practice with anything that's in the room. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong. There folks. should be there should be built because we all work shifts, right? In yeah. EMS, there's twelve. There's four hours in there that you should to hit that forty hour, the magical forty hour for start paying you overtime. Um, you should have maybe an allotted amount of time per month where you come in and you check in at that sim lab. You're paid to be there. You incentivize the people to go to the sim lab. Like hey, I'm going to go earn a yeah. you know a couple quick extra bucks. That is a fantastic idea, and I'm going to completely steal it. Yeah. Good, yeah. good. I'll come get a job mm. at your your shop. That's we'll fine. all yeah. get jobs. Let's all, all get jobs. Get, we'll all get jobs. Together. Danny, get yourself a helicopter. You got yourself a medic. Heyo. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's a your shop only, that you, you guys do the mobile competencies, right? Yeah, we do mobile competencies. So we, if you have we, mobile competencies, we do twice a year, and we put our field training officers in an ambulance with a sim, a sim man, and they go out and practice skills, teach new drugs, do all sorts of stuff. It's it's really good because it gets you while you're on your shift. You know? So maybe something to consider just having that as a high fidelity simulator for downtime, or not necessarily for competencies where you're quote unquote great. Uh, we do. We are in the process. We're going to build a mobile simulation truck. I will even add into mm. my thought because maybe you don't. Maybe you can't every you know pay period go eight hours into the sim lab. Maybe you can do a clinical shift up in a PICU. Maybe you can do some time in the OR. Maybe you can do some extra time in the ER. Um, cardiac cath. Well, I don't know about cath lab. But oh, maybe cath labs are generally the easiest thing it's to get a, it's, into. Yeah, it's they'll easy. let you it's, watch. They'll oh let no, you watch anything. Don't get me wrong. It's easy. Yeah, you can watch all you want. But I need stuff. I, w- I want stuff that's a little bit more applicable. I want e- maybe you spend some time if with a cardiology group where you interpret EKGs or you learn something from an electrocardiophysiologist. Or you see people post op. Or yeah, mm-hmm. or you can where you spend time in a um, ICU, mm-hmm. where, maybe like a cardiovascular ICU. Do some definitely do so if you can do rounding, do rounding. Uh, yeah. As somebody who does yearly clinicals. There is one thing I do not want. I listen. I'm gonna be honest. I don't like doing clinicals because I feel like a lot of it doesn't really apply to me because the nurses won't let me do anything because I'm just a medic. But being a part of rounds is probably the most informative thing I do during these. As a medical student, my life is rounds. <laughs> yeah. So I can attest to a lot of learning is done on rounds because you have literally, sometimes depending where you're at, dozens of physicians talking over a case, and you're hearing so many things. Way to approach a, a diagnosis. Way to approach a treatment. Different types of treatments, different types of diseases, different types of medications, different uses for stuff. Things you would never even think to think about, you hear about on rounds. So if you do have the opportunity, I actually think that's a good idea. I didn't even think of that. So there's a lot. So so we're up on a hard out. But um, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of ways to go do this. And, you know, pediatric airway is just, you know, we, we've touched on some things. And we, we kind of uh, also talked about how you can go get this information and go get your own education. That's important. It's part of being a professional. It's part of being a good clinician is to seek out opportunities. Talk to your training officers. Talk to your medical directors. Try to improve it a little bit at a time. 
Uh, don't take away skills. Practice your skills. Get mm-hmm. better at your skills. Um, that's where we need to go as a profession, regardless of you know what color the truck is or what uniform you wear. You're, we're all clinicians. We're all doing the same jobs. We should all be free to do them to the to the length of our scope of practice, um, with appropriate oversight and the ability to educate ourselves to do the best for our patients. So uh, that's a good place to stop. Um, again, this has been a great discussion. Uh, we're going to bring this back more and more. Um, I'm still sweating. Yeah, okay, you're not Anna, as right anymore. Anna's, st- <laughs> Anna's been breathing. She's been doing some, uh, you know, yoga breathing, and she's doing better now. So that's good. Thanks for checking in. Um, yeah, we're looking out for you, Anna. So, um, you know, again, what we'd love to hear is what you think. Uh, hit us up on Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, Instagram, Overrun Productions, uh, Twitter's uh, Overrun EMS, uh, Facebook's Overrun EMS, uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Alexa. Uh, iHeartRadio, all the uh, podcast outlets were out there. Um, anywhere. anywhere you can think. Um, Find us. And let us know. You know, Let us know what you think. Let us know what your shop's doing. And if you have something interesting uh, about it, we'll, uh, we'll definitely talk about it and we'll share it. So uh, for, the, for the overrun, I'm Dan. I'm Anna. I'm Jess. I'm Kevin. And I'm Mike. And uh, thanks for being with us. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Get home safe. Bye.